The rest of you, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to open up to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, looking at verses 1 and 2 predominantly. Before we do, Pastor Don mentioned the book True Community that we're going through right now in our home fellowship groups. This book has just been incredible um, to me. And I just wanted to read a, a paragraph, part of two paragraphs here, that are the introduction to chapter 4. That's the chapter we just did in all of our groups this last week. Um, the author here is Jerry Bridges, and he writes this. God does not save groups. He saves individual people. Each of us must respond individually in repentance and faith to the gospel invitation. But although God saves us as individuals, he immediately incorporates us into the body of Christ. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. God has drawn together a spiritual community whose members share a common life in Christ. Koinonia expresses, first of all, the relationship that the members of this Christ-centered community have with God and with each other. Koinonia expresses a relationship all believers have together in Christ without regard to their geographic location. It is also true that Koinonia expresses more than a membership in a local congregation. As important as membership in a local congregation is, Koinonia expresses even more than that. The relationship expressed by koinonia does not describe a membership, but a common life that we share together in Christ. Amen? So true. And it's that common life that the Apostle Paul wants for the Christians in all of the churches but specifically here, we're looking at his letter to the church in Philippi. The Apostle Paul loved that church. And he had had to deal with a couple of other churches that had some real difficulties in them. Specifically, the church in Corinth that had a lot of factions and divisions within it. And Paul did not want that for the church in Philippi. And so that is a major focus of his letter to them. Last Sunday, we looked at Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. And we saw that Paul started a new section in his letter to the Philippians by calling them to live their lives as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel. Not as citizens of Philippi or citizens of Rome, but as citizens of the kingdom of God. Paul had already demonstrated and written that he himself wanted to live for Christ and to be the cause for others to glory in Christ. Well, Paul wanted this for the Christians in Philippi and for all Christians. He wants them to live as Christ would have them live, 
to honor Christ in all things and to shine as lights for Christ in the present darkness. So Paul called them to stand firm, to hold their ground, to hold fast to biblical truth, to hold fast to convictions without compromise regardless of the costs. We can do this through the power of the Spirit of Christ who dwells within us. He also calls the Christians to be of one mind, to be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul here is focusing on the need for unity and cooperation within the church. We are always stronger and more effective when we are living in true community with our brothers and sisters in Christ and when we are working together for the sake of the gospel. Paul wants us to work together as a team to accomplish all that the Lord has given us to do, primarily to advance his kingdom on this earth. Paul also reminded them and us through them that living for Christ and proclaiming his gospel of grace can result in suffering for his sake. And Paul told us that that suffering is actually a gift of God's grace towards us. It causes us to draw near to God, to spend time with Him in prayer. It causes us to grow and mature in our faith. And it stores up rewards for us in the eternal state that awaits us when our work on earth is over. Those who oppose us cannot defeat us. For Christ will build his church, and even the gates of hell cannot stand against him. Amen? But God knows and tells us through Paul that for us to accomplish our mission at building up his church in this dark and sin-filled world, we will need spiritual unity within the church. And that is the focus of of our text that we start today. So, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to be reading Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Today we're going to focus on the first two verses of this text. And then in a couple of weeks we'll return to examine verses 3 and 4. Interestingly, in the original Greek, verses 1 through 4 are one sentence. Even though in our English translation it breaks them up. And so we'll get our introduction to this section today, and then we'll complete it 
in a couple of weeks. Paul starts off here, as I said before, with a focus on the need for spiritual unity in the church and in the body of Christ. Now, we recall that the night before Jesus went to the cross, he actually prayed for his followers to experience unity. In fact, to experience the same unity found between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let me remind you of what Jesus prayed. In John 17, verses 20 and 21, he prays this prayer. I do not ask for these alone, speaking of the disciples with him, I do not ask for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That includes all of us, because we've come to believe in Christ through their word, which is his word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also might be in us. And implied there is that they might be one in us. So Jesus prayed for unity among his followers. Jesus knew the need for all of his followers to be united, to be of one mind, to have the same love, to be in full accord. And this was made possible through our union with him, through his sacrificial death on the cross, through his resurrection, his ascension back into heaven, and his sending the Holy Spirit to cause us to be born again, to indwell us, and to make us one in Christ Jesus. Unity is absolutely essential if we are going to live lives worthy of Christ, and if we are going to strive side by side for the sake of the gospel. Paul is calling upon all Christians to live and work for Christ in unity as his true community. Now, our objective union with Christ is eternal. But our human frailty and sin nature makes unity fragile among us. This is why Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, another letter written from his Roman captivity. He wrote these words, Ephesians 4.3, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul understood that unity was essential for God's people if they were going to accomplish the purpose for which God has placed us together. So we must be eager and willing to work to maintain unity in the church. So in this passage, in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, Paul gives us what is perhaps the most concise and practical teaching about how to foster unity found in the New Testament. In these four powerful verses, he presents a formula for spiritual unity that includes three necessary elements, the right motives, the right marks, and the right means to accomplish unity in the church. This morning, we'll look at the first two of these, the right motives 
and the right marks of unity. So look back at verse 1 with me again. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Paul begins here with a deliberate emotional appeal that was meant to remind the Christians of how God had blessed them, to motivate them to pursue unity with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul mentions here four marvelous blessings that come to us through Christ. The first blessing is encouragement in Christ. What encouragement we have knowing that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We are encouraged to know what Christ has done in saving us. We're encouraged to know that that saving work was completed in Christ. Amen? It is finished, Jesus said from the cross. We are encouraged to know that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can take us out of his hands or out of the Father's hands. We are provided with comfort, counsel, and encouragement from Christ through the Spirit of Christ and through the Word of God. So we, as Christians, receive the encouragement in Christ. The second blessing is comfort from love. This refers to the experience of the believer of Christ's love. We are loved unconditionally by Christ who gave his life for us as a demonstration of his love. But his love for us does not stop there. He loves us so much that he adopted us into his family, his covenant community, and he continues to pour his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Amen? We experience his love on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis. We are greatly comforted by knowing that Christ will never stop loving us, and he will never stop demonstrating his love for us. His supernatural love for us gives us great comfort, doesn't it? And great assurance no matter what we face in this life. The third blessing that motivates us to pursue unity is fellowship of the Spirit. Koinonia, or fellowship, as we know from our home fellowship group study, describes a partnership, a sharing together. This fellowship is the result of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in every believer. The same Holy Spirit who dwells in me, dwells in my brother, dwells in my sister. One Spirit, one body, one people of God. He is the seal and guarantor of our eternal inheritance. He is the source of our spiritual power. He enables us to live in unity with other believers. 
As I read earlier, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. It is the Holy Spirit who unites us together with other believers into that true community of God. And our proper response to this great blessing should be, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And the fourth blessing that Paul mentions to us, to motivate us, is the blessing of affection and compassion, which come to us from our Lord. This is the way that Christ relates to us through His Spirit, with affection and with compassion. Affection describes a deep, personal longing for those who are dearly loved. Paul used this same word in chapter 1, verse 8, when he wrote, How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul experienced the affection of Christ in his own life. And because God pours the Holy Spirit into our hearts, then we can love one another with that same affection of Christ. It is the love and compassion of Jesus for us that motivates us to love one another and to express that love. And compassion is to seek to live in unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would have compassion one to another and affection one to another. And the source of that is Jesus himself. So Paul has this theme that we hear repeated over and over again in his letters. In fact, in every one of the letters written from captivity, we find a similar passage. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15, I want to read that to you. He writes this. See if this doesn't sound familiar. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if each, if any has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. That's real easy, isn't it? Forgiving others as Christ has forgiven us? No, it's not easy. But is it possible? Absolutely. Because Christ has forgiven us and of far greater sins than anyone who has sinned against us. And then he says this, and above all these things put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And so, Paul understood the need for Christians to live in unity with one another. Paul understood the need that we have to make this a priority in our lives and in our relationship with others. 
The blessings that we receive from our union with Christ should motivate us to pursue unity with one another and to partner together with one mind for the sake of the gospel. Paul is so emotionally compelling here. He takes the Philippians back to the memories of the work of Christ in their own lives. They had all experienced encouragement and comfort in Christ. They had experienced the fellowship of the Spirit and the affection and compassion which comes from our Lord. Then he calls them to pursue unity as a church, as a way of making his joy complete and fulfilling their calling in Christ. Note there in the first part of verse 2, he says, complete my joy. Complete my joy. Did Paul have joy in the Lord? Yes. Did he take joy in the preaching of the gospel? Yes. Did he take joy in suffering for Christ? Yes. But there was still something missing in his joy. And that was to see his brothers and sisters in Christ experiencing the same thing. That would complete his joy. He had a pastor's heart. He wanted to see his brothers and sisters in Christ living together in unity and working together in unity. And so he goes on in verse 2 to give us three marks of spiritual unity. This, Paul says, would complete my joy. If I could look at your church and see these marks in your lives. And so the first mark, let me read verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? The first mark is being of the same mind. Or in the Greek, it could, it could be rendered thinking the same things or being of one mind mind. It's interesting that this word that's used here in the Greek is found 19 times in the New Testament. And it's always translated being of one mind or being of the same mind. 10 of those 19 times are found in this letter. That's how important Paul's focus is on being one in our thinking. And that's because thinking correctly is essential to unity. And that's why it's a major theme in this letter and in the other letters written by Paul as well. Being of the same mind means to actively strive to achieve a common understanding and a genuine agreement between us. A few verses later, the apostle declares that the only way to have such harmony is to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is speaking here of the mind of Christ. 
which we can obtain through God's holy word and through the indwelling presence of the Spirit of Christ. Now, having the mind of Christ is not speaking simply of knowledge, but thinking in a similar fashion, having the same motivation. Following Christ's example. Thinking his thoughts, if you will. That's the goal. That should be the goal for each one of us. In his letter to the Romans, Paul gives additional insight into how we go about developing the mind of Christ. In fact, why don't you turn with me to Romans 8. We'll come back to our text but I want us to look at two passages in Romans where Paul speaks about how we go about developing the mind of Christ. The first passage is in Romans 8, verses 5 through 7. Listen to what Paul writes. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So right there, Paul gives us some insight here into how we can have the mind of Christ, how we can have unity in our thinking, it's to take our eyes off the things of this world and to keep our eyes on Christ and on His Word, to allow that to be our focus. There are so many things in this world that distract us. Not only are there many distractions... But there's an underlying desire of our enemy to, to sow division among us. To get us distracted from Christ and his word and to fill our lives with everything else. And there's a lot in this world that we can fill our minds with, isn't there? Oh, the rabbit trails are endless, aren't they? And it's a good thing that, you know, uh, TV and internet, you know, the news and social media, it's a good thing they only give us the facts, right? <laughs> that way we won't be distracted. Right? Not. Thinking correctly is essential. And he goes on in Romans 12, 1 and 2 to write this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, or by the renewing of your mind, depending on your translation, that by testing, you might discern what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Don't be conformed into the thinking of this world. And don't allow the thinking of this world to become a distraction. And certainly don't allow it to cause disunity in the church. We have a tendency to focus on the minors rather than the majors. And the major here is Christ. His love, His grace, His mercy, His gospel, His calling, His kingdom. Right? In fact, it is possible It is possible for a San Francisco Giants fan to get along with an Oakland A's fan. It is possible for a San Francisco 49ers fan to get along with a Seahawks fan. Notice I didn't say L.A. Dodgers or L.A. Rams. But think about it. Think about it for a second. Would the, the team that you love and support, would that be a reason for division in the church between your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you kidding me? Of course not, right? But there's so many other things that we allow. How about political affiliation? How about who you voted for for president? How about... I mean, the list is endless, isn't it? Of the things of this world that have no eternal value whatsoever. And yet, it can be a cause for division between God's people. It should not be that way. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he goes on in verse 3 to say this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And he goes on to talk about the fact that we're one body in Christ. And so, (laughs) we know everyone has opinions, right? Everyone has opinions. I have my opinions, you have your opinions, right? And our opinions may differ on many things. But we need to be united in Christ, in his word, in his kingdom. We need to have the mind of Christ in spiritual matters, in kingdom matters. And we should all be seeking to renew our minds with the word of God so that we can all think like Christ which will then lead us to live like Christ in relationship to one another and to be of the same mind. A second mark of spiritual unity found in this verse is having the same love. Having the same love. Having the same love as who? As Christ. How is this possible? Well, I already quoted to you that the Holy Spirit pours God's love into our hearts so that we can then turn around and pour that love out to others. Our heart 
is not to be a reservoir of God's love. It's to be a conduit of God's love, a channel of God's love. So that as we are experiencing the love of God poured into us, it flows through us to others, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And note, to have the same love also indicates that we would love others equally. Does Christ love Pastor Don more than he loves Phil Caputo? No. We are all loved with the infinite, unconditional love of God, each one of us. And we are called to love one another in like manner, in the same manner. Now, on a purely emotional level, this is impossible. Because people, listen to me, people are not equally pleasing to us. It's okay for you to acknowledge that. It's the reality, folks. In our flesh... In our human nature, we don't value everyone the same. We don't. Sad, but true. However, the love that comes from God, as I said earlier, is an agape love. It's a love of the will, not a love of preference or of attraction. It's based on a conscious choice to love. It's an unmerited love, an unconditional love. It's not a love that's earned. It's not a love that's, uh, that's has any basis on the person that you're loving. It's unconditional. Thank God, because otherwise he wouldn't love us. This is the love that is God's love, and it comes only from him. This is the love described by the Apostle John in his first letter. We could read the whole letter, frankly, but I want to look at 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12. This is just a concise portion of what John writes about God's love among God's people. Listen to what he writes. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, I don't think John means whoever loves his spouse, whoever loves his children, Okay, even those in the world do that. He's talking here about loving our brothers and sisters with the love that we're loved with. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Amen? Amen. Praise be to God. But he goes on. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, I am not going to stand before you and tell you that I am a perfect example of this. 
because I am not. I am absolutely not. There are some people who are very hard to love. And no, I'm not looking at any of you in particular. (laughs) Sometimes after I preach, somebody will say, Pastor, you were looking right at me. No, I really wasn't. I'm just looking out there because that makes you think I care what you think. Listen to me. Listen to me. I'm not saying I'm not saying this is easy. It is not. Folks, it is not. But I am saying it is possible. I'm saying more than that. It's commanded. If we want to rejoice in being the objects of God's love, we need to also be the instruments of God's love. He loved us, yes, so that we could love him, but also so that we could love one another. So in our text, Paul is describing that same love with which God has loved us and is now being directed by us towards other believers in the same way. We make a choice. We make a decision to love one another in the body of Christ. And then we look for ways and means to demonstrate and live out that love. And we'll talk about that some more in a couple of weeks. The third mark of spiritual unity is being in full accord and of one mind. Being in full accord or united in thinking and acting. Now, this is very challenging. This indicates living and working together as one. To be in full accord is to live and work in selfless harmony with fellow believers. So by its very definition, it excludes personal ambition, selfishness, envy, jealousy, and countless other sins that are the result of self-love or putting oneself first. Good thing none of us have any challenges with that, right? Like every other Christian virtue, being in full accord must be grounded in the objective truth of God's word. God tells us what we need to be in full accord regarding. We don't have to be in full accord on our favorite sports team. We do have to be in full accord on what God's word tells us. So there's an objective component to it, but it also has a subjective aspect to it because such unity involves a deep and passionate concern for God, for his work, for his gospel, for his people, for his church. I think it is safe to say that no two Christians, no matter their spiritual maturity, no matter their knowledge of scripture, will understand everything exactly alike. One day... That will be glorious. Amen? 
when there is complete and total unity among God's people forever. I look forward to that day. But it's not today. But, but if we are controlled by humility and love, we can live in full accord and agreement for the sake of Christ. We will not allow inconsequential differences to divide us or to hinder our service to Christ and to his kingdom. We will be of one mind to please and honor Christ and to accomplish the work that he has given us to do for his glory. We have three men serving as elders right now in our church. And I can't tell you how blessed I am by Pastor Don and by Eric. And I'm blessed by the degree of unity that God has given us in shepherding his people. I'm I'm blessed by it. Now, does that mean that Eric and Don and I agree in all things? at all times? No, of course not. But we do not allow our personal differences to get in the way of the work that God has called us to do and the unity that he has given us, the love for one another and the love for the work is glorious. And this is possible for every one of us through Christ. So In this one verse, the Apostle Paul presents a full circle of unity. Note that. It starts by being of the same mind, then the same love, then the same accord or purpose, and right back to being of the same mind. This is what Paul wants for the church in Philippi, and I believe this is what Paul wants for all churches He wants every follower of Christ to pursue the unity in Christ that is so very essential to us pleasing and glorifying Him. After all, where do we see unity? True unity in this fallen world. Nowhere. Nowhere. But it should be seen in the church. And when it is, it's a shining light in the darkness. When the members of Christ's church live in true unity, they become a light in the darkness, the darkness of selfishness, the darkness of disunity. So in two weeks, we'll look at the next two verses that describe for us the means for us each of us individually to pursue the spiritual unity that's so essential in the church. I'm going to ask you to read those verses and to meditate upon them, to really think about what Paul is saying in this passage. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And think about how it applies to you. And yes, even examine your own hearts to see if there are areas that you need to repent of in order to promote a greater unity and a greater love between yourself and your brothers and sisters in Christ.
I have been doing that myself. I'll tell you, I'm convicted. And I think we all have room to grow in this area. But you know what? We have a God who loves us, who is patient with us, and who is working in us to bring his will to pass in our life and in the life of our family as well, our church family. And so I'm excited to see how he uses his word to transform us and to bring us into even greater unity than we have now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to share your word with your people. Father God, I do thank you for the unity that we have experienced in this church for many, many years. Oh yes, there have been little attempts to affect the unity here over over that time, but Father God, you have given your elders great wisdom and guidance in dealing with those. And we thank you, Father God, that there is a great deal of unity here and love and agreement, being of one mind as to how God would have us serve him. So, Father, we thank you for that. But, Lord, we know that individually we are still sinners. Individually we still struggle with thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought and not putting others before ourselves. So help us in this, Lord, we pray. And we know you will because this is your will for us. We give you the praise and glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.